You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. U.S.A. 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 Big win for the states today. Beating Iran 1-0 to move on to the round of 16, advancing out of the group stage, out at the World Cup. We're going to get into it with Taylor Twelman later in the show, tell you just how big of a win this is. We've also got lots of college football to talk about, including the latest CFP rankings. Uh, Aaron Schott's going to join us as usual for our NFL chats. Plenty to get to. Courtney Cronin in with me today on Spain and Fit. Sarah Spain with you as always. ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Courtney, this was a biggie. If the U.S. had lost or even drawn a draw, which is a statement we invented right here on this show, (laughs) they would have been going home. There we go. But instead, they get the victory, they beat Iran, they get to the knockout stage, and for those who aren't familiar, because the U.S. men were not in the World Cup the last time around, and the U.S. women uh, never don't advance out of the knockout stage, this is a big deal for a very, very young U.S. team, and it was not a given. It was very hard fought uh, with a draw uh, with England, uh, a surprising um uh, uh, you know, effort against Wales where they started out looking tremendous and then second half fell apart. So uh, they earned this one, Courtney, and this is a big deal. No, it's huge. And I remember I'm not the biggest like soccer aficionado here at ESPN. And I remember like going back to last Monday when you we were watching the Wales game. And I was like, all right, is Wales good or are we just like <laughs> looking kind of like great and then not so good? And then I got nervous and I was watching this game on pins and needles this afternoon and realizing that we get to play on Saturday. We get to play mm-hmm. the Netherlands. I don't know if the United States can beat the Netherlands, especially if Christian Polistic's injury is something that's worse than maybe just, I don't know, it looks like it was more than just getting the wind knocked out of him. Maybe it's a rib injury. Who knows? But gosh, that was such an exciting first half. And then I got nervous in the second half thinking that they were going to give it away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. They looked super dominant in the first half. They had possession of the ball throughout. They had multiple really good chances. Pulisic scores and ends up in the net for several minutes after the score. I think he took one uh, in the meat and two veg, but also, as it turned out, got an abdominal injury at the same time. He came back in briefly to end the half and then was replaced at the halftime. Um, hopefully, healthy enough in the match against the Netherlands. He did send a photo out from the hospital saying he will be back, and he was so proud of his team. Um, A huge moment for him, Courtney in particular. This is a guy who is sort of the present and future of American soccer, was this great hope for the U.S., this young star who was playing abroad in the highest leagues in the world and coming back to represent the U.S. And when the U.S. didn't make the World Cup the last time around, it was a massive blow to his ability to really assert himself on the global stage. Now he has this opportunity and he makes the most of it. Mm -hmm. It, Heroic effort on the goal and after. And... Uh, It was really fun to see um, this kid that you've heard so much about uh, show up in the biggest moment because it's not a given that you won't falter or 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 crumble with the amount of pressure that is on his shoulders. Yeah, and I mean, some people on Saturdays before the college football slate turns on, they get to watch a little bit of Chelsea football, and that's all that they know of Christian Pulisic and the limited, you know, the big stage now that he has when all eyes, especially in the middle of the week, are on the World Cup. This is the opportunity, I think, for U.S. soccer certainly to break through to maybe more, you know, like – 
average fans, people who don't get to watch mm-hmm. it that often. I just I worry what this team's going to look like when he's if he's not able to play on Saturday. We did see he was given a thumbs up in that look look like a hospital bed following the match. Uh, it was a picture on SportsCenter. There's another injury though that I would be worried about here uh, to John Sargent. Just considering you know it's not just Christian Pulisic, but his leg injury in the 75th mm-hmm. minute did not look good at all. So, you know. Big win. The goal was huge. The moment for the United States w- was monumental, considering all of the geopolitical issues that have you know mm-hmm. centered around this game yeah. throughout the and week. Certainly, something to consider about the Iranian team and their fans going back to Iran in the midst of the upheaval, and many of them not singing along to the anthem. Many of them speaking up on behalf of the rights of women in that country. So. Our thoughts are certainly with both the players on the team and the outspoken fans and supporters there because they're going home to a whole lot and uh, who knows exactly how they will be reacted to. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in with me tonight for Fitz as we talk about a big win for the U.S. men's national team against Iran, sending them to the round of 16 against the Netherlands, which reminds me, uh, just a couple years ago, when I was hosting, I believe, Spain and Company at the time, the U.S. women's team was about to face off against the Netherlands in the Olympics. And we were having trouble getting fired up for the matchup, not because of the weight of the game, but because uh, we don't have a long and historic rivalry with the Dutch. They seem like nice people, great tulips. And so we were trying to come up with reasons to hate them. And I'm going to try again in the year of 2022. Perhaps we have found more reasons to dislike the Dutch uh, at Spain and Fitz at Courtney R. Cronin at Sarah Spain is where you can send us your thoughts on why we should hate the Dutch. You could be a part of Spain and Fitz Nation on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed. ESPN Nation is presented by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. The one fans deserve. I'll post that when the segment's over. You can respond with reasons to hate the Dutch. But that's the matchup. And, Courtney, you know, after watching the game today, there are moments that make you extremely enthusiastic about this team. Again, the first half possession, the space they created, the chances that they got. There was a second goal that probably should have counted offsides by a kneecap and that rule and the VAR and and everything just makes it so much tougher to watch. You kind of want it to be a a general, general offsides, not literally we can tell by centimeters of a kneecap that it was offsides. Uh, But the second half did give you some questions. Zimmerman was huge, a wall of a man getting what felt like almost every single header to send the ball back out when uh, Iran tried to attack. Um, But the injuries that you mentioned and the competition level goes up. This was a, 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 group stage that they managed to make it out of scoring just two goals. Um, Actually, the U.S. allowed the fewest goals in a group stage since 1930, and they only played two group stage matches back then. So big bonus for them not giving away any goals in open play, actually, um, only on a set piece. So they, they showed some reasons to be really enthusiastic against the Netherlands, and then we see how healthy everybody is. Yeah, and I think that that second half where – the United States should have scored more goals when I, you know, Iran's uh, defending was kind of waning. That's at least what it yep. looked like to me. So either it's a not capitalizing on opportunity or being shorthanded and that being the reason for that gives me a little bit of concern because it felt like after that Pulisic goal, they were just on, you know, playing prevent defense, so to speak. I'll use my NFL yes, that's terms exactly here. And I got very nervous. I got very, very nervous watching that. I was yelling that we so to take you behind the scenes when we did around the horn today, we actually filmed 
the second two segments of the show during halftime of the game. So we all sat together and watched on our screens the first half of the game. During the halftime, we filmed the B block and the C block. We guessed how many points we might score in the first part, (laughs) taking you behind the scenes here. Finished off the show, got the winner, then watched the second half together, and at the end of the game, taped the first segment of the show about the the soccer. And while we were watching together, Reality in his typical way was so enthusiastic. Oh, it feels great to be up one. Isn't this a good position? I'm like, this is terrifying. They need to stop just playing defensively. They need to pressure again. They need to get it back into Iran's box. They need to be putting the pressure on, not just sitting back. This is a recipe for disaster. Um, And it worked out, but uh, they did get some help from Iran turning the ball over and and some bad possessions on their end. It's Spain and Fit. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin with you. Send us reasons to hate the Dutch. Send us opportunities to trash talk them on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed. There are only two things I can't stand in this world. People who are intolerant of other people's cultures and the Dutch. That's right. Exactly. Not for any good reason yet, but you're going to provide some. A big win for the U.S. men today. Also a big win for you if you decide to participate in Giving Tuesday, a global day of giving, and we've got a way for you to get involved. It's the start of ESPN's V Week, where we continue Jim Valvano's fight against cancer, and we can all make a difference today by supporting cancer research, which is needed now more than ever. If you're able, give now at v.org donate v.org slash donate 100% of your donation goes to cancer research coming up we got a new top six in college football we'll react to it next Spain and Fitz the podcast we already have one reason to hate those windmill loving tulip boasting turds in the Netherlands at Nick L comedy says wooden shoe wearing bastards <laughs> i don't know why we're supposed to dislike their wooden shoes i think they're kind of cool but they seem infinitely less comfortable than really any other option and i would be fine if the entire men's national team of the netherlands opted to wear wooden shoes for the game on saturday i think that might be just the benefit the u.s needs to advance <laughs> how do you walk well. in those things i went to I amsterdam yeah. and i saw I saw them like being sold. I'm like, who would actually buy those to wear? Mm. It's a relic. It's not it like an actual relic, piece cool. of clothing. Maybe for display? Maybe. Uh, it's Spain and Fit. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. Let us know reasons to hate the Dutch and the Netherlands or Holland, if you want to call it that. Whatever you want to call it. Amsterdam, probably not going to get a lot, but, uh, you know, whatever you need to do to get us fired up for the game against the Netherlands on Saturday for the U.S. men's national team in the World Cup. Let's switch gears for a moment to college football. We've got a new top six. Courtney, I'm going to start at the bottom of the six or the top, depending on how you read it. Number six, Alabama. Number five, Ohio State. Slipping out of the top four after the beatdown from Michigan, but certainly still have an opportunity to work their way back in. USC sitting at number four. TCU moves up to three, Michigan, my Wolverines sitting at two, and Georgia maintains the top spot. You got a beef with any of that? No, and I would like that top four to stay where it's at right now because nobody can play their way in this weekend. Then no one should be penalized for possibly playing their way out or burdened with that because – the way that I, you know, this was this was what we were projecting the top six to look like, and I know that some people were, you know, concerned about what that Alabama and Ohio State would look like, considering the way Ohio State lost to Michigan in the second half. But they're five, 
Alabama six, and both of those teams, Sarah, are staying home this weekend. They're not mm. playing in their conference championship. So if you look at 12 games of the sample size that the CFP committee has to work on, and they clearly think USC, an 11-1 and USC team, has proven itself worthy of a playoff spot, more so than Ohio State and Alabama, then I don't think it's fair going into this weekend when they play Utah on the Pac-12 championship to ask them to play a 13 game, ter- 13th mm. game to like prove you belong in the top four. So I I think that punishes them for winning their division and playing a conference title game. It's It would be different if Ohio State and Alabama had to play a 13th game this weekend as well. But I want this to stay the way it is because I don't think it would be just to the rest of the teams in the CFP if you're just wait, basically waiting on a TCU or a USC yeah. to lose to put the other two in for consideration. Will be interesting to see because uh, very often what we find at the end is that there is movement right beforehand and there isn't always an easy uh, understanding as to why the decisions were made. But that is your new top six in college football. Georgia one, Michigan two, TCU three. Uh, my computer just cut out. USC four, Ohio State five and Alabama sitting at six. Let's get into some other college football stories of the day. We mentioned this yesterday. We talked about Hugh Freeze uh, and the announcement coming from Auburn as the new head coach. Six years, an average of six and a half million per season, sources told Pete Thamel. He was introduced at a news conference today and uh, this is what he said. Uh, It looks like maybe on the Paul Feinbaum show or was this at the press conference? Either way, Hugh Freeze talked about being worried he might never get another opportunity. You know, you you wonder during that time, you know, will you ever have the opportunity to to do what you love at the highest level again? And and there's been days where you wondered for sure. And you know, I made a commitment uh, six years ago to to get up every morning and, and lead a disciplined life that uh, is a grind to to try to be the best I can in every area. And um, it was work and fight to to compete at places like Liberty. I owe them a lot of, uh, man, thanks. It was an incredible journey there. But to celebrate today with my wife and my daughters, my mom and dad were here, uh, some uncles uh, were here also. and. And uh, it was just an incredible feeling of, um, of just thankfulness and humility, gratefulness. Uh, we're just, we're very thankful. I love him making himself a sympathetic figure. Oh, will I ever be allowed to do the thing I love the most for six and a half million dollars a year, no matter how many times I prove over and over again that I'm a disingenuous and unfit person to lead the lives of young men or be responsible for youthful people of any kind. In case you don't know, by the way, you're welcome to go back and find the timeline of Hugh Freeze's many issues, including multiple calls to a Florida-based escort service from his university-issued cell phone, Issues around violations uh, from the football program that occurred during his tenure. Uh, Issues with Laramie Tunsil's Twitter and Instagram accounts being hacked. And then the fallout of, you know, Freeze claiming that he knew nothing about the exchange between Ole Miss's assistant AD and Tunsil trying to get impermissible benefits. Then you got him going to Liberty to redeem himself, where he starts badgering the victim of a sexual assault for talking about uh, Ian McCaw, who was a, you know, very under fire AD at the time for Liberty for mishandling multiple sexual assaults where he had already come to Liberty from Baylor for overseeing them during their sexual assault issues, but definitely in Freeze's best uh, uh, decision-making skills to DM a 
young co-ed repeatedly badgering her to stop talking about the AD. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, Courtney. Don't you just love college football showing us for the millionth time what they actually care about? Yeah, I mean, it's very obvious here what the bottom line is. And for Auburn, it's trying to beat Alabama the way that they didn't do in the Iron Bowl and to stay relevant because it's hard in that state when you have a program that gets all of the good recruits and you're playing little brother time Mm -hmm. and time again, you've got to do what you got to do. And that's a program where its boosters control so much of what goes on, so much of the decisions. And Brian Harson was not an Auburn guy. That was an outside hire outside of the SEC realm where all of the rumors about Lane Kiffin being a candidate for that job, they wanted Lane Kiffin. The way that that played out with him staying at Ole Miss, Hugh Freeze was their second choice, but Hugh Freeze has been in the SEC bubble all of his indiscretions, and there are quite a bit of them off the field, that didn't matter at the end of the day for John Cohen, who it's really intriguing to me because he said at his press conference that they did a thorough search and that the that everything they were diving into as far as Hugh Freeze passed, that they covered all of the grounds. And it's interesting because they actually didn't. Like, as much of a thoughtful, thorough, and well-vetted quote-unquote search they did, they never reached out to, Auburn that is, that former Liberty student who you were referring to, she was the one who was the recipient of multiple unsolicited Mm -hmm. direct messages on Twitter from Hugh Freeze. And she's gone on the record talking about that and – it's just a matter. It's just a matter now where it's like again, once again they just laugh in our face when you ask them to do their due diligence and they stop way short of getting there. Yeah, and it's not surprising. I wish people would stop saying things like "This is the end for fill in the blank," whether it's Hugh Freeze or Urban Meyer or any number of other folks. The college football world has shown us over and over again that you will get another shot if you're a good coach, regardless of how unsavory your behavior is. And this is just the latest. And I urge those who haven't read up on it to read about the story of the Stanford soccer player who died by suicide, who is now her family is suing Stanford for the role that they potentially played, they believe, in her suicide. Uh, She spilled coffee on a football player who allegedly raped her underage teammate. And the school's response to it... um, they said was an acute amount of stress that caused it. Just look and see what ADs tell you they care about. It's worth reading. Taylor Twelman going to join us next to talk U.S. men's national team. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive offers a great price and round-the-clock protection when bundling home and auto. It's one of those rare times when you could save money and get something great. Bundle today at Progressive.com. All right, let's bring him in. We've been trying to get to talk to him since the World Cup started, and he's here. We found some time. It's ESPN soccer analyst Taylor Twelman. At Taylor Twelman is where you can follow him. Okay, so the U.S. looks great in the first half of this win over Iran. They're moving the ball. They're possessing it. They've got space. Everything's Mm -hmm. good. Second half, I felt like Twelman. I was like, what are we doing? Because I was so terrified that the whole defensive sit back and hope to God nothing happens would work. Did you feel the same way about that strategy second half? Yeah, I did, Sarah. I really did. I think you hit the nail on the head because I don't think you needed to do that based on the opponent's strengths and weaknesses. The number one strength of Iran is to sit in and defend. Now they got to chase the game. They don't know how to do that. They don't want to do that. They tried to do that against England, and they lost 6-2. So the way you combat that is to stay with what you're doing. Allow them to come forward. Allow them to now try to play the game. 
And your strength as the United States men's national team is one that is very good in space, very good on the counter, very good when the game opens up. Allow Iran to play into that. I was oddly shocked that the way Greg Berhalter assessed the second half, and yet it's kind of been, Sarah, the trend for him throughout the entire World Cup. He's been A-plus with his 11s. He's been A-plus for this first half. I think he's been a C-plus in, in halftime and second-half adjustments. He hasn't made the right moves at the right time, and that's part of the reason why you and I were on pins and needles thinking, are they really going to give this up? And they almost did in the 98th minute. Taylor, what do we know right now about Christian Pulisic's injury after scoring the game-winning goal? Because I saw him laying there in the goal for about three minutes. We just saw something on SportsCenter where it looked like he was in a hospital bed, but given the thumbs up, is there optimism that this is not going to be something that keeps him out on Saturday? Yeah, there is. I mean, listen, I I was the one that put that picture up on SportsCenter, and I I used it as the reference that I think all of us on the outside and even some of us that are really close to the situation looked at it and said, that looks like a broken rib. And if that's a broken rib, we've seen it with Aaron Rodgers Sunday night. You guys, I've played with one. You can't breathe. Trying to run six, seven, eight miles with a broken rib is going to be difficult. But for Christian Pulisic to have that picture come out, and to make it seem like it's going to be no problem whatsoever that he's going to be available and ready to go on Saturday, I think that takes the anxiety away from the situation. But if it is a bruised rib, broken rib, whatever it may be, guys, that's not the easiest thing to play with. But you'd rather have Pulisic, I think, at 60-70% than not have him at all. Uh, completely agree. I, I was both uh, sad to hear it was an abdominal issue and also, I guess, glad because I thought he just got hit in the twig and berries and that it must be extremely serious for a future line. Well, Sarah, he's one tough nut, they say. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> is one tough nut. Uh, as I think Mike Golick Jr. said, kicked in the bleep for America, uh, which he really <laughs> he really did. Taylor Twelman's with us, ESPN soccer analyst, to talk about the U.S. big win over Iran. They move on to the round of 16. Can you put into perspective how excited and enthusiastic we should be about this compared to expectations for this team? That's a great question. And honestly, that's one for a 45-minute podcast. I think, <laughs> Sarah, when you think about this, and naturally because the women have been so successful, the non-soccer fan that tunes in every four years looks at it and is like, wait a minute, the Americans are great at everything but men's soccer. In saying that, Sarah, you're one that would appreciate this because you follow soccer a little bit more closely than others that we work with here at ESPN. Is that United States men's national team was one, the youngest of any national team Mm -hmm. ever starting at a World Cup this year and for the United States. But two, most importantly, they had every single player in the 11 was starting for a top five club in Europe in their respective country. It's the first time ever for the men. And when you say that out loud, you say, well, wait a minute here. That didn't take us 100 years to do that. That only took us about 20 to 25 years since the start of Major League Soccer and the real, I think, emphasis put on growing and developing players at the highest of levels for multiple national teams. So the level of expectation is so out of whack because naturally you see Pulisic playing every Saturday or Sunday morning for Chelsea. You've got Dest and Barcelona and Juventus and Milan and all these great clubs, and naturally the SEC college football fan says, oh, so now we're going to win it because we finally got guys there. <laughs> That's not how it works. So mm-hmm. the progression of the American play player has been expedited with this younger generation. But we got to remind ourselves that you're one of the best 16 teams in the, in the world. 
And when you look at the history of the Men's World Cup, there's only a certain number of countries that have won it because it's very difficult to win it. And so you've got to take each step of your growth. And I think at times we worry too much about the ends and not the process. And I think the process has been pretty successful, even if you include the failure of uh, missing the 2018 World Cup, if that answers your question. Taylor, this U.S. team had a ton of transition opportunities, and it feels like that should probably be their strong suit, but time and time and time again, it feels like they're not able to turn those moments into goals. How do they change that against the Netherlands? It's interesting because, honestly, the way you look at it, the way you just asked the question, is the strong suit of the United States in transition in moments where space opens up? I think against Iran, it was a little bit more difficult to have those because they just didn't want – I mean, Timothy Weah, if that goal counts in the 51st minute, guys, we're talking about a three- yeah, or four-goal type of performance. Oh. Right, exactly, exactly, literally by his kneecap. So I just think the Netherlands is going to play in a certain way that is going to allow the United States to maybe play a little bit more to their strengths, but you've got to capitalize. And at the highest of levels, it often comes down to one moment. You don't get 10, 11, 12 that you may see at the club level. And if you're clinical enough, you can turn the game on its head, and then all of a sudden you can reap the benefits of that. Netherlands are going to possess the ball. They're going to tactically try to overwhelm you in wide areas, and they do that better than some of the, any countries in the world. And yet you have the athleticism in real pace to expose them on the counter. Honestly, it should be a great game on Saturday and one that I think suits the United States maybe a little bit more than the game today. Taylor Twelman with us here on Spain and Fitz. Courtney Cronin in for Fitz as we talk about the U.S. win over Iran and their advance out of the group stage and into the round of 16. I think nothing frustrated me more today than the the corner kicks. What the hell are they even doing? Are they trying to set up goal opportunities? And why? I mean, Pulisic, for all the good he did with that goal, is it is it better to put someone else in that position or is it too late for that? Yes. No, no, no. I think there's a real debate here. I, I do, sir. I think there's a real debate. I don't think Pulisic set-piece delivery has been good. Uh, I Let me take that back. I thought against England it was better than what we saw against Wales. Um, but, yeah, I, I think there's a real debate there. I, I have said all along I think Dest, who delivers the best ball, may be the best person there because – naturally he's not a set-piece target with how little he is, and two, he's got pace so he can hit the ball in, deliver the ball in, and then recover and look for the counter. And I think Pulisic may be better suited looking for second balls. It's a real issue. The United States men have always been dominant, and I use that word dominant um, because it's true on set-pieces. Even my generation, we dominated set-pieces. That was our strong suit. We were going to win set-pieces, and so that was a way we could expose ourselves to maybe having a strength. This team is equally as good on set-pieces. It's just the delivery hasn't been good enough. Yeah. So level with me here. Do you give the United shots? How big of a, how big of a chance do you give the United States to beat the Netherlands on Saturday? Well, Vegas right now has them, I think, just over plus 300, if I'm not mistaken. So three to one odds, which is fairly there. It's more closer to a draw. It depends. I Give me, and I'm never one, Sarah will tell you this, Courtney, I'm not one to sit on the fence. 
But I want to know more about Pulisic's injury. Yeah. I want to know if it is a broken rib or, or, or broken rib cartilage and if he's going to be off the bench. They've got to play Giovanni Reyna. I don't know how the hell we've gotten through three games yeah, there's and he's be played less than there. 15 minutes. Yeah. It's a joke. Um, I give him a shot, but naturally they're underdogs, and they should be underdogs. And quite honestly, the United States, particularly on the men's side, they kind of thrive in the underdog role. Yeah. Hey, awesome stuff. Great to finally get a chance to chat with you. I know you're super busy. Thanks for the time, Taylor. You guys are great. Good hearing your voice. Always love talking to Taylor Twelman. Follow him at Taylor Twelman. He is the voice at ESPN for soccer slash football. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin in for Fitz tonight. Coming up to Sean Watson, set to make his return to the football field, bringing up a lot of questions about how people should handle his return, plus some news about folks who will be in the crowd at his first game back. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Courtney Cronin hanging out with me tonight on Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, cheating on me right up until the final days of our radio marriage. Our last show is Thursday night. Couldn't even make it a full final four days with me. But Courtney Cronin's here who was often a guest host on Spain and Company during that stretch. So great to have her back on Spain and Fitz tonight. And a good time to have you on, Courtney, because you have a lengthy career covering football teams. You're currently on the Bears beat, but you were with the Vikings. And I know you actually did some work. uh, Was the Warriors before that? That is correct. I was out in the Bay Area, and that's where my NFL career started. But before I was doing the Raiders and 49ers, I was on Warriors coverage in the midst of their 73-9 and run. There you go. So many a beat reporting gig. And for those who aren't familiar, it's a very different kind of job than a lot of other sports jobs. You're often with all the athletes, the coaches, the staff members. You really get to know a team quite well. It's been a long time since I've been in any capacity like that where you're really up close and personal with a whole franchise and following them, uh, all of their games and all of the intricate details of, of what goes on there. And Uh, I want to tap into that insight that you have because Deshaun Watson is done with his suspension terms. He is now eligible to play and will return next Sunday for the Browns against his former team, the Texans. Now, 10 of Deshaun Watson's accusers plan to attend that game in Texas. Tony Busby, who represents the majority of his accusers, said the goal is to, quote, kind of make the statement, hey, we're still here. We matter. Our voice was heard, and this is not something that's over. Sexual harassment happens every day in the United States. So there's that part of things. But, Courtney, a lot of what people won't see is the interactions between Deshaun and the staff, teammates, family members, coaches, massage therapists on staff for the Browns, his interactions with the reporters. And I wonder if you've spoken to people around the league over the course of the last couple months uh, or even recently about the difficulties in handling a return of this kind. Yeah, I talked to somebody in the Browns organization a couple days ago, just kind of gearing up for this week. And the word that was used to describe what they anticipate Deshaun Watson's return being was roller coaster because – all of the media coverage this team is going to get. For the last couple of weeks, it's been kind of null and void because they haven't been very good. Yeah, they did just beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and Jacoby Brissett's a cool story, and all of that's great. But now they come back down to reality that Deshaun Watson's 11-game suspension is over. And these questions that Kevin Stefanski has not had to answer for quite some time, they're going to come back up more than this team wants to, ha- that wants to deal with. Like, I know that... 
the way that this stuff works when there is either an arrest or there's something that needs to be addressed publicly that doesn't have to deal with an on the field situation of, you know, a penalty or explaining something that might have, you know, gone awry for the team, real life things and, and stuff that's, you know, a huge black eye on this franchise that he's never even taken a snap for outside of one preseason game in Jacksonville. Like, this is not just going to be a one-time thing. It's not just going to be talked about tomorrow on Wednesday as much as the team would like to contain it to expecting the worst for tomorrow and then being able to move on. This is going to get be continue to be asked about, especially mm-hmm. if any new information comes up. And it's the uncomfortable balance now of covering somebody in what they did on the field, asking those questions, and then it that's in the same breath, weaving in anything else that needs to be addressed based on the sexual assault allegations. Like I, my first thought with this was how our colleagues like at ESPN, Nick Friedle, for example, how they handle covering Kyrie Irving in the situation with anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, that he was promoting on his Twitter account and still being able to talk about the Brooklyn Nets and what they were doing in their early stretch of games in November. So, there is a fine line of balance and you have to do both. It's not a matter of covering one or the other. Like the best example I can give you of when that got got completely blown out of the water was when I was in San Francisco in 2016 during Colin Kaepernick's protest, where I worked at the San Jose Mercury news and our beat writer just got overwhelmed by covering effectively two beats, which was the 49ers. And they're not a very good team. And this is Chip Kelly's first year. And it's nothing's, we don't even know who the quarterback's going to be for week one. And on top of that, Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. speaking out every week. And he always he always had a, a press conference, even though he wasn't the starter at that point, at his locker in the in the locker room. So we had a separate reporter come in strictly to treat that as its own beat. That will not be the case here with Deshaun Watson. As a beat writer, you cover both, but we, I mean, you're going to see the media attention on this continue to spike throughout the week because it's the biggest story in the NFL. And specifically, you know, I don't know if this was cruel fate or if this is just a sick and twisted joke from the NFL, but the fact that his first game back comes in Houston, I, I, I remember when seeing that when the schedule got released and I was at a loss for words for that, but we do know that there will, you know, be a lot of protests probably around NRG stadium when the Browns get there. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Courtney Cronin filling in for Fitz tonight as we talk about Deshaun Watson's return and the news that 10 of his accusers plan to attend the Browns game with the Texans on Sunday. You know, Mina Kimes and I have talked about this in the past because there are plenty of athletes that have these incidents that you tend to talk about at the pivotal moments, which is the moment of accusation, the moment of a court date, a trial, uh, victims speaking out, the moment of a trade. Uh, a signing, a drafting, right? There are these sort of pivotal moments during which we really dig into the sort of delicate and more nuanced topics behind uh, criminal behaviors and, and unsavory behaviors. And then you eventually have to sort of get to talking about the sports. But that doesn't mean that those moments can't be referenced when necessary and and when you know, people who want to talk about them want to. In the case of someone like Tyree Kill, I think Mina Kimes wrote an entire story about when is it appropriate to bring back up the the things that he admitted to doing, which included strangling his pregnant girlfriend. Um, when it comes to Ben Roethlisberger, 
I, I, there was nothing new about his stories that would require me to mention it every time he played, but certainly when he retired, I wanted to bring up repeatedly that the whitewashing of his multi-time accusations of sexual assault shouldn't just be forgotten so we can make word clouds that say family man as he exits the sport. And so in the case of Deshaun Watson, I think for each person, the coverage will be personal in terms of how much they dedicate to him as a player and how much they dedicate to him as a person who still has these accusations hanging over him. Um, Kevin Stefanski, the coach, talked about his return and on the football side of things, whether he'd be ready to go. With Deshaun, again, you know, we spent a lot of time together. So he was here all spring, all summer, has been in back in the building. I met with him this morning. Sean spent a lot of time with his teammates. Um, I think they've all enjoyed having him back and, and being a part of the team. Next step is, is obviously uh, being out there, taking all the first team reps. Uh, he's been doing a nice job getting the defense ready with the scout team reps that he's gotten. Uh, so I think he's, he's done a nice job uh, with his time away, uh, physically staying sharp, mentally staying sharp. Uh, so I think he'll be uh, ready to roll. I will say this, Courtney, as much as we are going to be seeing him a lot more all of a sudden, this is a team of players, family members, staff, coaches that have spent this entire time uh, with him a lot during preseason and then when he's been allowed to return to practice here. And there's a lot of delicacies around that as well, I would imagine, for those who are uncomfortable around him. Um, and that's going to be something to consider as well. Yeah, let's not like act like everybody who works within that building in Berea, Ohio, signed off and were was gung ho on Deshaun Watson getting there. I know several people inside that building who were not thrilled about it. And at the end of the day, that's an ownership call. That's an Andrew Barry and ownership call. And they signed off on giving him that record setting contract. And there's nothing that the average sort of employee can do. And it's going to be a fine line and a fine balance to figure out what that looks like. So ever, making sure that everyone in your building is comfortable. And I just don't think they're going to get that. I do hope that the people who talk about him the most on TV don't find themselves saying dumb things like distractions. Let's talk about this using the right words and using the right severity of the issue at hand. Coming up, where do the Bulls mix into the hierarchy of the Eastern Conference? And let's talk Bears, too. Next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast.